0: Thank you.
1: Olympus, the Inner Sanctum's Olympics podcast. I'm your host Jackie and we've got Dan with us today and we're joined by two guests this week. Uh, our one writer from the Inner Sanctum, Beck, and the Inner Sanctum's baseball and softball expert, Jason.
2: Hey Jackie, I'm uh, very <laughs> glad to be able to contribute to this podcast. I've been looking forward to it ever since I've been asked really, you know, long-time listener.
1: It's been a bit of a... Uh, Strange week for all of us, I guess. The two Melbourne people, not in lockdown. The rest of the country, definitely in lockdown. So how are you two faring, Beck and Dan?
3: I mean, it's good. I have something to look forward to after doing nothing today. So I'm absolutely stoked to be getting on and, you know, talking about what happened over the weekend with the hockey, which was really, really interesting. And just obviously, like Jason said, been a long-time listener, so I'm keen to get involved too.
0: All nine of our previous episodes there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's it's, it's a really interesting time. Um, there's lots going on. I personally have completely ruined my sleep cycle watching the tour de France um, for the last three nights. And that's going to continue for the next two and a half weeks. So um, I'll be almost as nocturnal as Jackie.
1: Yeah. It's um, still probably a better sleep schedule than me, but <laughs> it says more about me than you.
0: But Yeah. Um, we, we might kick off with our regular how is Japan going ahead of the Olympics segment. Um, we don't have a public poll this week, which is a nice change. <laughs> Normally, that's a, a very depressing number, but we heard on Thursday last week that um, the state of emergency in Tokyo and six other areas of Japan will be eased this week um, and cases are on the way down, uh, which is a really good sign. And the measures of any kind at the moment or the less stringent ones um, are scheduled to end on July 11, which is 10, 11 days from now. Um, and about 12 days from the Olympics.
1: Yeah. It's a great uh, sign for the Olympics, especially. Maybe they're coming out of those lockdowns a little bit too early, but I think that it does a lot of goodwill for the Japanese public about the Olympics going ahead. Cause if you have 15,000 athletes arrive in the country and everyone's still locked down in Tokyo, people are just going to be even more angry with the games going ahead than they already are.
0: Yeah. And and the Japanese have also got some really exciting things going on. They've rolled out their vaccine program to a new level. They hit a million people in a day last week. Um, And so while they are kind of starting from about the same spot as Australia, they are ramping it up pretty quickly.
1: Which, yeah, they're (laughs) ramping it up quickly. Australia's, vaccine situation is a whole other story but they've gone from about two percent to eight percent of their population being fully vaccinated in about a month and a half which is quite impressive when you also look at the fact that japan does have a bigger population than australia does currently uh so the fact that they're getting a million people on their first dose or their second dose in a single day is just massive like and great news for both covid and the olympics
2: Yeah, I think it's really positive signs, um, everything that's happening in Japan at the moment, especially ahead of the Games. Um, Obviously, everything relaxing um, just, you know, less than two weeks out from the Olympics itself, um, it kind of puts Japan in possibly a bit of a sticky situation should anything else eventuate and should things get worse. But um, for now, like, it's good to see that they're quite positive and quite up and about. In delivering a really good games,
3: and just like another thing to consider as well is for a lot of people, um, the vaccine seems like a little bit of a security blanket. And you know, the more people getting vaccinated, you're vaccinated, the more people can return to normalcy. Um, so yeah, like you said, it just bodes really well for the Olympics, and I think it just creates a general feeling of security among the general public which, you know, therefore adds to the trust in the game's going ahead.
1: I agree. I do think it's interesting that the Japanese Emperor Naruhito speak, spoke up about the crowds going forward just this week. So last week, as we stated, there'll be 50% capacity for venues and or 10,000, whichever number they hit first um, as the maximum capacity. And he's said that he's worried about it because it will potentially cause a massive spread uh, in COVID cases in Japan. It's We do know that it'll only be national uh, Japanese national citizens that can go and then obviously international media that is there. But I think it's a reasonable concern, even though we've been going to sport for months now and there hasn't been huge case flare-ups. But at the same time, there has been events where someone has contracted COVID, gone to a football match, and it's a massive scare. Like when a stadium of 60,000
3: people are now like, oh God, do I have to get tested too now? And I think a concern coming from someone as influential as, you know, the Japanese emperor, like that it definitely does hold a little bit away. And, you know, because he has this power and influence, you know, um, over the Japanese citizens' thoughts and processes and whatnot, people may begin to change their attitude, which, given all the protests and the petitions to stop the Olympics, isn't really productive for actually getting the show on the road.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the steps that we saw that is kind of more about getting the show on the road is that the organisers announced that um, there won't be any sale of alcohol at the Olympics for for fans at venues. Um, And there was plenty of criticism from both uh, the medical associations and general Japanese locals about the fact that um, kind of the sale of alcohol promotes groups and, and things that kind of can be um, spreading behaviours. So it's interesting to see that those kind of precautions are being taken.
1: It's a good precaution. It's also a precaution where I would just go, if this was being hosted in Australia, it would not fly. People would be more angry about there being no sale of alcohol than there actually being the Olympics going ahead. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and we know that the, the Olympics aren't necessarily the most popular thing at the moment in Japan. Last week, I think the number was 75%. Um, we're opposed to it running as it is. But these little steps hopefully will kind of increase that confidence and increase the trust. And hopefully, once we get there, it'll be a really successful event.
3: Just on like the lack of beer available at the Olympics, don't most Olympics usually have an alcohol sponsor?
0: They do. And this Olympics does too. And um, there was a bit of thought initially that, so they announced the day before that they were going to have limited alcohol sale um, and Asahi Beer is the alcohol sponsor of the Olympics. Um, And by all accounts, Asahi weren't thrilled with the news, but um, I think the rest of us can understand why that change has been made.
1: It's a bit of a strange yeah. Olympics for sponsors. We talked the other week about some sponsors still having their money invested but wanting their names taken off things, especially if they are major Japanese companies. And then this is a situation where the sponsor's not happy because their product can't be sold. And it makes a lot of sense in both directions.
3: Just opens up a whole new can of worms, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and for um, the Japanese, the Sprinter Ryota Yamagata um, he's going to be the face of the Olympics for the locals. He's going to be the captain of the Olympic delegation. Um, and um, he's a f- national record holder in the 100 meters. Um, he's on his way to his third Olympics. Um, and he's a previous silver medalist at Rio who is part of the, the silver medal winning four by 100 meter relay. So he's, he's got kind of some runs on the board and he's a very popular figure. Um, and he'll be the one who is kind of the, the head of the Japanese delegation in terms of the athletes.
1: I think that it's a great story. I think also uh, Kasumi Ishikawa getting tapped to be the vice captain. It's not hundred percent confirmed yet, but it sounds like it'll be very likely she becomes vice captain of the Japanese team is another great step. This both in the sense that gender equality. And so they're having a male captain, female vice captain, and it, could be vice versa rather than it just being one single gender. It also highlights the fact that the Tokyo games is going to be the most gender balanced sport wise that there's ever been. Um, So the fact that they're highlighting both a male and female athlete as their team's leaders, they'll be in the spotlight for the entire games shows that they are really going for this gender equality focus and basketball star, Rui Hachimura has been tapped to be the flag bearer, I believe, Dan?
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like he's going to be the flag bearer. He's a, an NBA star, and and that looks almost like a nod to the fact that he's one of the most globally visible Japanese sports stars. I mean, playing on the NBA stage is a pretty major publicity thing, um, and he's pretty recognizable. So I think that having him as the flag bearer means that we'll have that iconic image of someone that we all recognise or, or a lot of people around the world recognise carrying the flag into the opening ceremony.
1: Well, and if we're going to talk about someone that's nationally recognised, it's a Japanese athlete, I think one of the really positive stories that has come out of the Naomi Osaka saga, I guess I would say, is that the Japanese Olympic Committee has officially said that athletes will not have to attend press conferences if they don't wish to, which she would obviously be one of the first people that is praising both this move but also they probably they've likely consulted with her as to like why this would be going ahead because obviously what happened at the French Open was less than ideal Um, and that was putting an athlete in a very uncomfortable situation and so the fact that the Japanese Olympic Committee has gone ahead and just said we're gonna make it less strict if the journalists get mad at it journalists get mad at it but this is what's best for every athlete that's attending.
2: Yeah, I think it's quite a relief um, for a lot of athletes and especially Nairini who has voiced her opinions on the process of press conferences and interviews at major sporting events. And, um, you know, you've had the international Olympic committee say that they're not permitting um, anyone to speak if they don't want to. And um, I think you'll find that a lot of athletes would welcome that as well. And, possibly just haven't voiced that opinion like Naomi has, but um, no doubt Naomi was sort of this beacon of, um, you know, speaking up for herself and possibly others. And, um, you know, you might see a bit more of that at these games and in the future, but, um, yeah, obviously athletes' mental well-being and health are more important than um, grabbing a few quotes. So, um, yeah, I mean, the media boycott, of Naomi, um, well publicized, but in the IOC saying that it's not um, needed at the Olympics, I think is a good step.
0: Yeah, and it, it's really interesting. I mean, Osaka's obviously been very vocal about the fact that she doesn't want to do those press conferences. And we saw at the Tour de France on the second night, Matthew Vanderpoel, after he won the stage and, and took the yellow jersey, which was you know, a massive emotional moment for him and his family. He, he said to the first question, I have no words. And then didn't have any words. There were no platitudes. There was no sort of sound bites. He, he was in tears afterwards um, and overcome with that emotion. You know, it was fantastic for cycling to see that. And there was a whole lot of plaudits for the person interviewing him who didn't press at him, who didn't prompt him, who kind of let him have the moment with his emotions and, he's going to be a really interesting one. He might be the only person who is riding the tour for fun. He is riding um, in part because his grandfather is from the area that um, the race started and where he wanted to win the yellow jersey to honor his grandfather. Um, He's going to roll off the tour or abandon the tour um, in the next week or so we expect. And he's going to be racing the mountain bike at the Olympics rather than the road biking. Um, And he's expected to be the favourite for gold. He's a multi-time world champion across both cyclocross and mountain biking, so he's pretty much a shoe-in. And it was amazing to see um, that kind of display of of ability that he has at the Tour de France.
1: And it was amazing to just see a very human moment from an athlete. Um, Like, as you said, it was just he said he had no words and he had no words. And athletes are people. That's the short end of it. They're not marionettes and we can't make them say things if they can't say things. And it's, yeah, that is one of those moments where you just sit and watch an interview and you're like, this is good journalism as well as a good human moment because they just didn't press on it. We'll touch back to tennis. Um, Fabulous segue, I know. With... Simona Halep has come out and said she will also not be making the journey to Tokyo uh, due to a calf injury that she's been battling for quite some time now. She missed the French Open. She's not got like she's not at Wimbledon currently, and it makes sense that she's also missing Tokyo. Stan Wawrinka has also effectively said that he's withdrawn uh, due to a foot injury that he's had to get surgery on twice in the past month. I believe it is. And that's just two of the big names. We spoke about Rafael Nadal withdrawing. Serena Williams has said her name's not on that list, and if it is, it shouldn't be for the United States team. And then we've still got people like Djokovic has said it's dependent on crowds. So now that there are crowds, he's probably going. But Federer has said it just depends on how he pulls up from Wimbledon. So we're missing some big names from tennis. When While the Olympics isn't the biggest deal, For the tennis stars, it is still one that is star-studded a lot of years.
2: Yeah, I think it'll um, be a bit different um, from the normal Grand Slam circuit of missing these big-name, high-profile players such as Simona Halep, such as Rafael Nadal. Um, But it also gives a chance for the underdogs, really. And, I mean, any chance for a player to represent their country on on the Olympic stage that might be a bit different to... A normal Grand Slam. Um, I think anyone will take that opportunity and even so without um, some bigger high-profile players representing their countries, I think the fans of those um, players and the fans from those countries will still get behind their players.
3: You always want to see, you know, the biggest and the best players on the big stage and you always want to see them playing well and, you know, while it is a shame that they're unable to represent their country, I just hope that, you know, their fans and their followers can respect their decisions or in Simona Hallep, you know, um, you know, wish her well in her recovery for injury because obviously you want to see them get back on the, you know, on the court as soon as possible.
0: And, and we also have one, another swimmer who's kind of decided not to go to the Games um, for slightly different reasons. Um, Win Tet-U is a Melbourne-based swimmer who... Was hoping to represent uh, Myanmar, his his homeland, at the Olympics, um, in the hope of kind of being part of the sports history. Um, but he made the decision a few months ago that um, after the violent coup in Myanmar, um, he was going to abandon his dream of the Olympics because he couldn't. He didn't feel that he was, um, you know, fit to to represent them, and that he he was worried that he wasn't going to be selected. Um, because of the way that the Olympic Committee interacts with the military, and he decided that um, he just would publicly boycott the Olympics and, and make criticism of the coup, um, which is a really courageous decision and something that certainly I think a lot of us around the world understand and can respect, um, but it is a pretty significant move.
1: Yeah, significant is definitely the right word, as is respect. Um, I think that the Olympics ban on political protests doesn't help the case because it's a stage where someone could actually speak out about what's going on in their country that might be bad. It's never going to end well in those cases regardless. But the fact that he has just spoken out and said, I'm not going, it's not about my body, it's partially about what's going on in my home country, that takes a lot more courage than most athletes actually have because they are in far more privileged positions than what he is in specifically. So it's it's interesting to see it come out and it's something that's positive for sport, I believe.
2: Yeah, it, take, it definitely takes a lot of courage to stand up in that way um, against what he is. And he's even tried to reason with the IOSC um, and with the Myanmar Olympic Committee as well, sending them a few letters and asking that athletes be represented under a neutral flag um, because he didn't feel like he wanted to march underneath the Myanmar flag, Um, but both of those were denied. So I guess he had to make that um, tough choice um, to not attend the Olympics um, for his own beliefs and values.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and another athlete who's not going um, and not quite for the same reasons um, is Mo Farah. Mo Farah has finally been beaten by Father Time, um, aged 39 and a lot. Um, he was uh, basically set to run the uh, 10,001 extra time at the Athletics British Athletics Championships in what was called the Invitational. Um, and it looked like it was going to go okay at the beginning, but... Um, he kind of the race unraveled at the end and he finished 27 or 19 seconds outside um, the qualifying time. So he hasn't missed it by a little bit. He's missed it by quite a lot, Um, but it does look like his Olympic career is over after a pretty decorated run.
1: It's one of those um, out with the whimper kind of stories because he's had such an amazing career and Some people probably thought he didn't need to go around again, but he had unfinished business with the Olympics and it's, he's not going to get a closure with his Olympic story in a lot of ways because had he gotten to go to that one last games, regardless of the result, especially with everything that's happened in the past year specifically, because they've gotten all that extra time. I do wonder if he is a case in point where had the Olympics been in 2020 still, he would have been right to go. Um, but as you said, Dan, father time caught up and he just couldn't get
3: fit enough for these races. And it's just a shame because he is such a decorated athlete and he just doesn't get that opportunity, you know, to defend his Olympic title, which, you know, is what, you know, once you've won a medal, is your dream. Like you want to get into the next Olympics and you want to defend that, you know, and it's just, like I said, it's just a shame that he doesn't get the opportunity to do that purely because his body had had enough.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of athletes, they want that one last hurrah. And, you know, in Olympic Games where it's um, delayed by a year, they think that they've got enough time to prepare even more for it. But um, it was evident at his race the other day that he was just in pain by the end. And it, if even if he did qualify, then, you know, there's no guarantee that he would have been able to back up his efforts from the other Olympic Games and would have just... Um, you know, probably just pushed too hard really in the end.
1: We'll move on to what is a story that will surprise absolutely no one, but Simone Biles has made the US gymnastics team. Uh, so over the weekend, they had their Olympic trials where six athletes were selected to represent the United States. Only four will actually be competing in the team event, which is Simone Biles, Suni Lee, <laughs> Jordan Childs, and Grace McCarthy. Callum. And then Michaela Skinner and Jade Carey will be able to represent themselves as event specialists uh, in quota positions that Jade Carey earned herself. So she was given a guarantee that she will have that position uh, by the US Gymnastics Committee a few months ago, I believe it was. And Michaela Skinner earned that quota placement um, in a fight between herself and Grace McCollum. At the trials everyone else seemed pretty locked in ahead of the games but it's a fabulous story Michaela Skinner specifically she only just missed out in 2016 so it's one of those opportunities there she might have thought that her Olympic dream was over but she's worked hard over the past five years and now is gonna get to go she doesn't get to compete in the team event which means she won't get what is essentially an assumed gold medal for the US gymnastics team, but she does get to go and chase a medal and just get to compete on what is the biggest stage in gymnastics above and beyond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they've all got great stories. Um, Skinner as well um, kind of had had issues with um, Achilles and and bone spurs. She had pneumonia. She's had COVID-19. So she's been through quite a bit, particularly over the last 12 months. And she's probably an athlete who's benefited an athlete who has benefited from that delay in the games and that her being ready will help. But I think that the U S gymnastics team at the end of the day, um, you know, starts and finishes with the same name. Um, and it's Simone Biles. And I think that, you know, she's going to be pretty dominant at the Olympics again.
1: Yeah. The weakest apparatus for Biles is the uneven bars. Her bars at trials were unreal. Whereas her balance beam, she had a full on it trials. She still won the entire event because her difficulty, uh, her D score is just ridiculous. But it will be interesting to see Biles go up against those Chinese gymnasts on the beam because that is where they're looking to really get one up on the United States and the Russians.
0: And there is, um, you know, lots of, of other places where we're looking to see those those contenders come out. The US have had their track and field trials over the last week. And there's been some pretty interesting stories in Jamaica has to one that caught my eye was um, Sydney McLaughlin um, broke the 400 meter world record um, in the hurdles. Um, and when you're breaking world records at trials, you're in um, reasonably good Nick for the Olympics.
1: It's I like watching a lot of the trial events because you do get to see where athletes are going to match up, but also, where those athletes are looking to set the pace for their heats, um, especially in the longer distance events. But when they're breaking world records in trials, um, and especially as with the Australian trials as well, there is always that concern that this is where they've actually hit their peak. And so they've got to time it for another month so that they don't peak right ahead of the Olympics still.
3: And even if they do hit those you know, world records and stuff like that, It's still enough, and I know the athletes are conditioned and trained into, you know, not letting the outside noise get to them and all that, you know, cliche stuff. Um, But it's still enough to go, like, oh, hang on, she's a threat. Like, she's definitely one to be. And, you know, it can help motivate or, you know, at times it can demotivate. But regardless, it's always good to see, you know, people, you know, setting personal bests and doing really, really well.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, this momentum of setting personal bests and um, just smashing world records will really carry them well into the Olympics, especially so close to the Olympics. I think that momentum will really um, help them perform uh, to the standard that they've already set as well, um, whether that's at previous Olympic Games or in this qualifying period. And, yeah, I have no doubt that, um, you know, someone like Sydney McLaughlin can continue her form at Tokyo.
0: One that, that drew my eye as well was Arian Knighton, who is just 17 um, and he's qualified for the Olympics in the 200 meters, running uh, 19.84 in the heats, which is an under 20 world record. Um, he beat Usain Bolt's uh, under 18 record in May, um, and now he's beaten. Bolt's under 20 record um, at age 17. For comparison, Usain Bolt didn't run as fast as he did until he was almost 21, um, at which time it will be after Paris for Arian Knight. And so he has a really bright future and has come out, I mean, literally all guns blazing in this
1: one. Yeah, it's definitely made a lot of people sit up, I think, and take notice of his medal chances. Um, the under-18s record I'd like kind of known about but didn't really think much of because I was like, oh, there's still a chance he won't go. And now that this one's been broken as well, you're just like, oh, this kid's not only going to like win a medal come Paris, he's going to win some medals in Tokyo.
2: Yeah, I think it's yep. really pleasing as well um, to see that his race times continue to get better through the heats and through the semi-finals, and then, um in that final race that he had so um the fact that even in the one sort of qualifying event that he's constantly beating his own times in those specific races um you know it just will set him up for further success whether that is um as soon as tokyo but certainly next time around in paris
1: Yeah, I think that it also can't be discounted that he ran that time in 42 degree heat and it was believed that the track temperature was 65 degrees Celsius, which it's meant to be hot in Tokyo. It's not going to be that hot. Um, So it's unbelievable to run any kind of time like that in normal conditions. The fact that it was that hot on that day, it shows that his body is in good nick at the moment.
0: Another one who showed there in good nick is Shelley-Ann Fraser-Price P- from Jamaica. Um, she swept the 100 and 200 metre sprints, as she has for a little while now. Um, she was a 2008 and 2012 gold medalist in the 100 um, and took a bit of time off for childbirth um, and has since run the fastest time of the year. Um, she ran 10.63 um, and she's the second fastest in in the world this year in the 200. Um, And if she wins, she'll be the oldest ever sprint champion at the Olympics, Um, but I wouldn't be counting her out just yet.
1: No, I think the fact that she's currently running some of the best times in the world, obviously Gabby Thomas uh, ran the faster time in the 200, but when it comes to that final race, it doesn't matter if you've got the first best time or the eighth best time in the world. Uh, if those times are so close together, they are milliseconds that she's just as good a chance as everyone else to win it. I thought it was interesting that uh, Omar McLeod at the Japanese, tri- Jamaican trials, I should say, uh, who was the gold medalist in the 110 metre hurdles finished last in their race. And it's one of those things where, yes, gold medalists do miss out on the Olympics from time to time from their trials. Mac Horton is a example from Australia but it's also it's so disappointing to see because you'd love to watch people defend like the amazing achievements that they have at the same time
0: well another one who seems to have fallen away a little bit is Johan Blake um, who of course we all remember from the Olympics Um, he's the second fastest man in history behind his old mate Usain Bolt Um, and he finished second in both the 100 and 200 trials but um, his times were, all the times for the Jamaican men were over 10 seconds um, and over 20.1 seconds in the 200. So there's it's the first time ever um, that they don't have a top 10 in either event um, going to the Olympics, which is unusual for the Jamaicans.
1: Yeah, I wonder, like, if the conditions were just a bit odd at the jamaican trials obviously it was scorching hot at the u.s trials but conditions do affect how well you run a race so that could influence something or everyone could just be out of form this year and it's just unfortunate circumstances for the jamaican olympic team
0: But the best um feat that we saw of anyone last weekend full stop is uh i'm gonna try javon harrison um, who in the US Olympic trials won the high jump and the long jump, which are not really the same events. So it's a pretty impressive achievement in my book.
1: And he did it on the same day. <laughs> like it's not that he did it on, did the high jump on the Saturday and then one long jump on the Sunday, he did both events on the exact same day, took two national titles. And it's looking like a really good mod- medal chance in two very
2: different events. Yeah, it was quite quite impressive to think about, um, you know, such different events and um, participating in them on the same day and um, performing at that level that's good enough to qualify for both events as well. So he's going to be representing, um, you know, the US in high jump and long jump at the Olympics. And, um, yeah, he's just on the same day. It's just a
0: magnificent feat. All power to him. Um, Speaking of of qualification and magnificent feats, Jason, you had a bit of a look at the last few countries trying to get a spot for the basketball at the Olympics.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, So the men's basketball field at Tokyo is taking shape, but there's still four countries to qualify for the 12-team tournament. So eight have already qualified for Tokyo. Um, And those four teams will sort of start to take shape and sort of start to be announced through um, a couple of tournaments that will take place in Serbia, Croatia, Lithuania, and Canada over the next few days. Um, Overall, there's 23 teams competing for those final four spots. So um, really it's open to anyone.
1: Yeah. It's something that I think Australians should be paying a bit of attention to as well. I believe that we have two of these teams that are going to qualify will be in the Australian group. I think it's from split and Belgrade, uh, which will be the two tournaments where they will enter the Australian group. And it is important for the Aussie team to know who they're playing and to see what form they're shaping up into. Um, I, I like our chances of making it out of the group personally speaking, but you just never know what ha- is going to happen. And we could end up with Russia in our group stage, which is kind of frightening <laughs> in the grand scheme of things.
0: It is, but I think I'd rather draw Russia than some of the other countries coming through qualifying. Canada is basically an NBA lineup. Um, and then, of course, Turkey's got four starters as well. But the one that really scares me the one that can't come out of the groups that we're facing Um, is Slovenia. There's a guy called Luka Doncic um, who comes out of there who's quite good at basketball, we've seen.
1: So I think we've gone a little bit over time today. So we might just cap it there and then we'll come back later on in the week to talk about the Australian sports and both of your specialties. So both Beck and Jason, thank you for joining us. And I hope you are looking forward to coming back tomorrow or whenever it ends up being to talk about the hockey, baseball and softball. But for now, this has been Ascending Olympus. You can find us on Twitter at AscendingOlyPod, And you can read any Olympic stories on theinnersanctum.com.au, uh, otherwise known as the Inner Sanctum. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you very soon.